Welcome to the On The Way podcast, a podcast exploring a non-violent, non-dualistic, compassionate faith life. My name is Dom Fay, Sue and Peter Carter here as always. Thanks, guys. Hey, Dom. Thank you, Dom. And we have a very special guest. I think our first uh, Scottish guest on the podcast, it would be, um, on the podcast today, John Bell, uh, who is a hymn writer, uh, an ordained minister in the Church of Scotland and a member of the Iona community, among many other things. John, thank you so much for making time for the podcast while you're here in Brisbane. Pleasure. Uh, Today's podcast is probably going to cover a lot of areas, as you know, your your bio there would suggest. In terms of, we could we could do a, an hour on Celtic spirituality, on the Iona community, on tradition of um, of worship, all these sorts of things, um, and we, we might touch on some of them. But uh, as a as an introduction, as a framework, I think we might look at the role I suppose that music plays mm-hmm. in a faith life. Um, it is something we've not touched on on the podcast before. Obviously, anyone who walks into a church service or a wedding or a funeral or, or any sort of service would see that the singing is such a key part uh, or, or the instrumental music, but the, the music mm. is such a key part of any sort of sacramental worship life. Um, so I, I guess I'm interested from your perspective, John, when you started to discover your own music passion, how old were you? Oh, well, I think I discovered it probably when I was about four because my parents sang to each other. I lost it when I went to university and studied music. <laughs> and I gained it back when I was about 28, when I began. Uh, my first appointment was in youth work. And young people were not singing, so I had to find a way to get them to sing. And how did you do that? Uh, well, they weren't singing because the predominant hymn books in Scotland were all written around about 1970, but it could have been 1870. And so we began by using music from other countries, particularly South Africa. Uh, I had a colleague who worked with me who was from South Africa and he said well everybody there sings and they all sing in parts so we got some of his music and began to at big youth events we would get people singing in four part harmony without any music wow it's great so what what role then do you think music or, or singing does play in a faith life why do you think it is so important well, it's important because you, you can't all speak together, but you can all sing together. So there's a, there's a thing there which makes you a community. You, you share a common song, um, and you do that all together. And the, the church is the only place that expect people to sing. You know, if you go to a, a tennis club, they don't say, can you sing? But there's a presumption in the church that this is a, an in-given, this is a given gift of God which you can use together. But for me, the big thing is that what we sing shapes what we believe. That's why at the last night of the proms, people sang Rule Britannia. You know, when Britain first, the Heaven's Command, came out of the Asia waves, the angels did not sing the Sanctus, they sang Rule Britannia. That song was written to get people behind the imperial endeavour. And a whole lot of secular songs, whether it's advertising jingles or whether it's folk songs, to some extent shape people's identity or what they believe. And the church, because we sing often, uh, has to be aware that what we sing ends up being what we believe. Mm. So when, for example, I ask people, what are the predominant features of Jesus? People who are either in the church or out of the church will say gentle, meek, and mild, which actually are not the predominant features. These are, you, He's never talked about as mild. He's only once referred to as gentle. And unless you use the King James Version of the Bible, meek does not appear. But that, that becomes people's predominant image, you know, that Jesus is a nice guy. No anger, no excitement, no passion, just a nice, steady guy, because that's what the hymn tells us. Hmm. Or, you know, uh, uh, 
working up north in Scotland once, I discovered that people have a resistance to change in the church because a favourite hymn is Abide With Me, which in the second verse says, Change and decay in all around I see. And it's only in the church where the couplet uh, change and decay come together and form within people a kind of innate resistance to any change in the establishment. Wow. Uh, it's incredible. You wouldn't really think about it, I suppose, because you walk into a church on a Sunday and you, you get handed the booklet or you sing the, the lyrics on the screen. I, I suppose for many people there probably isn't this uh, conscious awareness that what you're singing is informing what you believe. Do you think it's a subconscious or, or unconscious oh, it's a, thing? It's, it's, a, it's a, a subconscious thing. Uh-huh. It percolates down into the subconscious and that becomes the basis for bias or or whatever. Mm. But that also means that it's important that, this, that the church does not keep to a certain diet of song, but from time to time will vary that and do different things entirely. What do you mean by that? Well, you know, I, th- I think that if we don't sing songs that come from other parts of the world, you know, non-English speaking parts of the world, a generation down, people will ask us why we practice musical apartheid. Because mm. there are songs from Asia and from Africa and from South America which are perfectly possible to be sung within European or you know West, Western churches, but they're not. We'll do. We'll go for German, French, Italian, Spanish, Swedish, translated into English. But we're reticent to take them from what we call the developing world. Now I think that that once we begin to use that material, we both have a, a, a diversity of music and worship, which which we need in some places, but also we'll have theological insights which the Western Church cannot deliver. So what what's some examples of you using, I suppose, um, songs or music from other cultures in, in, in your work? Well, there's a, there's a lovely song from Mexico called uh, When We Are Living, We're In The Lord, and When We're Dying, We're In The Lord. It's the only song I know that says that. Most songs avoid death. This isn't a funeral song, but it's saying whether we live or whether we die, we're with God. It's a very important uh, sentiment. Or you could take, um, you know, from uh, South Africa, from a township where one in four people were infected by HIV AIDS, a song which my colleague collected, Come Bring Your Burdens to God, for Jesus Will Never Say No. Now, we've got very sophisticated songs in Britain, but none of them say as simply, Bring Your Burdens to God, Jesus Will Never Say No, and, and put to a tune which only has three notes. So now that's used within some British churches before people pray. Hmm. So I imagine you would have had to do a fair bit of travelling around to find a lot of these these songs um, and, and experience a lot of different cultural approaches to music. Well, yes and no. I mean, I've been to a fair few uh, countries, but I prefer uh, if people come to Britain or if I meet them uh, and they're out of their country, I'll say, what's the song that you keep in your heart when you're away from home? And I reckon that if you can find that song, it might be worth other people singing. Hmm. It clearly has a pedigree. And sometimes you'll find that's a translation of a psalm that people keep in their hearts. Not Psalm 23, but maybe Psalm 93, which say, which asks God to rouse himself and to deal with justice. Because for Salvadorians in El Salvador, that was one of the hymns that helped their resistance with Oscar Romero against a corrupt government. So it's not just you know, going elsewhere. You know, I, I would not want to take a, a, a tape recorder and say, sing me a song from your country. I'd want to talk to people who have a story about the song, who have a value, who cherish it, and then I think it might be transportable elsewhere. So I suppose in your own story then, John, I mean, many of us, I imagine, have had the experience of being in a church and, you know, reading lyrics that maybe we 
think the theology is a bit off or mm. or um or we we just don't find much richness in that particular song but most of us just you know sing the lyrics because that's what everyone else is doing and then we go and have morning tea after the service or or a meal after the yeah. service what was it for you that spurred you on to think no actually i i want to write some some music that can be used in this context that actually is fulfilling what it could fulfill well i suppose there were two things one was the the archaic nature of much of the song of the church that I grew up with, which nobody understood, you know, but we sang it because it was part of our collective pedigree since the 19th century. On the other hand, you had this wave of blandness which came in with a whole lot of songs where whether, you know, you wonder whether Jesus is the saviour or the boyfriend, or maybe the boyfriend is Jesus. Uh, And, you know, I was teaching in an American seminary where people showed us the kind of things that they like to sing and like to write. And there was nothing about social justice. There was nothing about the incarnate life of Jesus. There was no empathy with anybody else in the world. It was all uh, a relationship about Jesus and me. And Jesus, me, and love appeared in the songs. Or a very victorious God. Mm. Not a God of empathy, but a God who was above and beyond as if the incarnation had not happened. Now, when you get that kind of, you know, for me, that's bland, disincarnate, and it doesn't really touch the reality of life that people live. It's an escapist kind of thing. And I suppose that maybe encouraged my colleagues and I to try to, to offer something else. It is like those songs are very popular because of their high production values that often come out of these places and, and yeah. things such as that. But you're, I guess you would say that to the churches that think, well, people enjoy singing these ones, that actually they can be quite dangerous to sing. Well, I mean, they, they can be dangerous, but they, all, they also can be good. I mean, if, there might be a balance against the very kind of pedestrian and uh, and droll kind of singing that sometimes sometimes you get. But you have, for me, the criteria is, the major criterion is, is this a corporate song for the people of God to sing, or is it a performance song for gifted professionals to sing through a microphone while other people listen? I remember going to a big Anglican youth rally in in Ireland. It was in Belfast. There were about maybe 1,600 uh, young people, 14 to 20, in there. And they had organised for a praise band to come from America to lead the singing. Now, I wasn't preaching until maybe 20, 25 minutes in, so I went to the back of the hall and sat. Nobody was singing. The praise band shouting, we can't hear you, we can't hear you. Well, no wonder they couldn't. Nobody was singing. They were being blasted with this sound. There was a picture of the lead singer, which was being broadcast on the screens round about. So you saw her pouting for Jesus and putting on a sentimental uh, kind of facade because she knew the camera was on her. And yeah, if you're into entertainment, that is religious entertainment. If you're into worshipping God, it's something which is corporate and not a passive uh, appreciation of what other people can do. I suppose many in that tradition would say they find the experience of, of some of those more stirring songs maybe more more of an experience in their, in their eyes, maybe of the Holy Spirit than uh, him, for yeah. example. So what is it that do you see the beauty of, of hymns and of corporate singing of that, so, that sort? Well, yeah, I mean, you can have God or you can have a good experience. You don't get them both at the same time. And and these two have to be, you know, kind of uh, looked at fairly carefully. <laughs> but, but you know, a, a, a hymn should speak from the reality of people about God or about God to the reality of people. I don't find many churches which go for the go for growth and go for entertainment, which will deal with lament. Now, one in four women in these churches will have the experience, sadly, of of losing a baby either in the womb or at birth. 
where does the church lament? Some of these people will have uh, suffered the loss of a loved one. Some of these people may have experienced redundancy or become incredibly indebted. The church, at its best, has a pastoral song which relates the pain of people as well as the joy of people. And if you excise that and say that's not, that's not the kind of thing we do in this church, then you're, you're disenfranchising people from a meaningful relationship with God. Mm. Wow. I, I know, I suppose that when you look at a lot of these hymns, particularly the traditional ones, despite the theology, though, there is a, a lot of attachment to some of them, maybe. It's similar to how, you know, if, if I tried to argue what the best Beatles song was in the world, I might get some very heavy disagreement. Yeah. And it's not about the sentiment being conveyed in the song. It's my experience of the song, my memories of yeah. the song, the melody of the song. Oh, sure. Uh, but, but music does that. One of the things that music does... Uh, whether it's uh, performance music or whether it's hymns, they take us to a place where we once were. And if that was a fond place, then we like that. If that was an un- uh, if I take an example, it seems ludicrous. A friend of mine was in having his toenail uh, removed, ingrown toenail, and he's lying there on the bed, and there's a screen so he doesn't see what's happening. And then the surgeon, it's all kind of frozen, you know, local anaesthetic. Surgeon says, "I'm just going next door to check that I go with my friends to check that all is well." And my friend began to panic, and he began to sing. The Lord's my shepherd. And the girl who was the nurse next to him began to cry. And he said, oh, I'm, so, oh, I'm really sorry. She said, no, it's just that that was a song sung at my grandmother's funeral. So so she, you know, who's been a nurse, hears that tune that was sung at her grandmother's funeral and she begins to mourn for her granny while she's looking after a patient. I mean, mm. that's just the evocative power of a, of a song or a tune. It takes us where we once were. And it causes disagreements in church because some people don't like that particular sound, whereas others just love it. So I know that communal singing is something that, that certainly has gone beyond the church, uh, in, a, in a sense, obviously people like going to, to gigs, but even, you know, you look at the pub choir movement lately, um, and I know Brene Brown's commented on this, hasn't she, on the, the love of singing with... Yeah, well, that, that was one of her, I think, three or four reasons why she would go to church was the chance to sing with. Um, that's how she raised that. But I think pub choir, I don't know, pub choirs all around the world, but pub choirs here in Australia and um, certainly in Brisbane, it's this amazing phenomenon. They, at the moment, it's an idea of, of gathering people together and learning to sing in three or four part harmony, just one yeah. song. So you spend a couple of hours just on one song. Mm-hmm. But they are selling out um, the tickets. You know, they'll sell a thousand tickets in three minutes to go to pay to go and sing a song. And, of course, I've gone along. I had a ball. I, I loved yeah. it. Gone along a couple of times. But you know, I sat there the first time I actually came home a bit sad because I thought, they're doing church better than we are. Because <laughs> <laughs> they actually had um, sort of commentary on the, some, some social things. They took up a collection from the Romero Centre. Um, and I thought, this is what is being raised up in because people are missing and longing for that communal connection. Mm. And so they're going and attending and they're prepared to pay for it to go and attend this. And it was uh, it was a hoot. You know, there's a lot more swearing than is in church. But in other ways, I mean, I did reassure myself by going, actually, but we have to wake up with our same community the next day and the next day and the next day and keep doing community even when it's difficult. Uh, but it is a wonderful example, I think, of how much joy people get from singing together. And there's obviously a deep history, John, with, with communal singing, um, you know, in, in cultures. I imagine going back just about as far as we have records oh yes and, uh, and a lot of singing would be just 
folk singing. I mean, every culture has its folk songs by which people remember the story of the tribe and the things that are important. So, yeah, all over the world, people have been singing for a long, long time. Probably sang before they spoke. They would imitate animals, imitate birds making sounds, and then gradually would put words to the sounds, and the words would be about their lives or their history. It is a, a when you step back and observe it, it seems a very um, almost irrational thing to do. You know, why why would one sing? Why sing? Um, and I know there's many people who would go in a church and you can just you, you see them they they keep their lips pursed while the 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 worship is underway. Why do you think? Um, I suppose why do you think at a core level people do sing? Uh, because uh, for two reasons: one, because it expresses emotion. And uh, yeah, it's a powerful outlet. You know, I, I'm interested in Scotland. I'll say to people, "What do you sing when you're sad?" Uh, and people say, "Country and Western," because you know, th- it's all in D minor, and uh, somebody dies or somebody's heart is broken, and that's a reality for for many people. And so, when they hear that, or when people are singing it, they're singing their their emotional self. You know, other people might want to sing, oh, what a beautiful morning, uh, because they're feeling quite kind of happy. So it expresses that. And it also expresses words. You know, you could say to somebody, happy birthday to you five times, but uh, singing it is, is very different. That's the genius of opera. You know, the, the, the text is very small. Do you love me? No. But that goes on for 20 minutes. <laughs> I actually love Irish music, and I've, I've been struggling for a while to work. And I always have this tension when I listen to Irish music about whether it's happy or sad, yeah. and why it creates such that longing in me. So much Irish music when I listen to it creates that sense yeah. of longing. And I heard someone unpack it recently and saying, "Well, it is because it's both. It somehow manages even like whether it's the the fast reels or you know, it's even." The, the joyful sounding music still has that touch of sadness and it manages to evoke and probably it's something from Irish history and it's something of the of the heart and the, the struggle that's in Irish history mm-hmm. that gets poured into the music but it, music has that capacity to evoke a both and and something that you, that even I'm, I'm thinking you could sit here with your list of emotional words and, and struggling mm-hmm. to find the right one mm-hmm. to put on it. And Irish, Irish music, uh, like Scottish music, much of it, the traditional music, has only five notes. So it's it's like you could you could I've taught a tune from Korea to people in Northern Ireland who are convinced it came from County Cork, because all over the world folk much folk music is based in five notes. So it has the possibility of being mel- melancholic, or it can be uh, quite kind of joyful. I think one of the other um, great strengths of singing is that it actually takes us out of our rational self. So we actually can sing. We can sing metaphors. It's 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 poetry set to music, I think, um, and it actually helps us process stuff in a different way. So, if, if I was to speak to you in sentences using some of the imagery that we capture in hymns, you might start to think I was a bit silly, but because I sing it, it actually puts us into a different part of our brain space it's like a super rational experience and and we can actually explore um, feelings and uh, concepts in a completely different way I think it takes us into a completely different realm of existence and we talk about lifting our hearts I think it's actually a, it's a it's one of the ways we transform ourselves and in our rational culture it's one of the ways we take ourselves out of our heads and put ourselves back into our hearts hmm. I suppose when you think about music being that powerful, which, I mean, it sounds quite an obvious thing to say. Everyone, every human can can relate to, you know, the song that will take them straight back, as you mentioned, John, to some heartbreak or to their happiest day mm. or 
it, it's almost too powerful at times music i suppose it does indicate how important it is to know what it is you're you're singing and um it is interesting that some people, you know, if you hear a song lyrically in, in terms of on the radio or whatever, that you just totally dislike the 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 lyrics of, you'll probably dislike the song and turn it off. But mm. many in church that have theology we might dislike, we keep singing them because it's tradition. Yep. Um, what Do you think that's something that needs to change, Peter? Well, one of our strategies here is to, to look at the tunes people like and then find better words. <laughs> so to, to uh, a few years ago, I, I, there were a few hymns that I... I I do ban like the Battle Hymn of the Republic and, and Onward Christian Soldiers and stuff like that. And I remember going to uh, a gathering at, at a former parish and one of the people said to me, oh, we sang that fantastic hymn um, that we never sing in church and we all had a really great time and it was the Battle Hymn of the Republic about you know God squashing people, the grapes of wrath and all of that sort of stuff. And so I said to her, could you just read me the words, please, of that hymn? And she got about halfway through the second verse, and she said, "Oh my God, this is horrible." I said, "Hmm." I said, "But she said, but I love singing it." I said, "Yes, but imagine the effect that that's having on your soul and your understanding of God uh, at your deepest visceral self." And so, we decided that we would start looking for words to those tunes that were about social justice and about transformation, because. Um, and and to drag people out of the um, out of that particular theology into another one using a tune that they really like. Mm. So last synod, for instance, we sang a hymn to the Battle Hymn of the Republic that was all about Jesus' love march, you know, Jesus' love continuing on and Jesus' transformation continuing on. And everyone sang it with the same gusto. They sing the Battle Hymn of the Republic, and this time they were talking about Jesus actually mattering. Um, being incarnate, as John says, and actually making a difference. And they thought the hymn was great because the tune yeah. was the same one they recognised. Speaking of the importance of theology and hymns in that way, you, you mentioned before we started recording one of the reasons you love John's work so much from a theological perspective. Can you just touch on that? Oh, sure. Well, uh, jo John's one of the few people that's actually used um, feminine imagery uh, in hymns to capture the nature of God. And you know, I think... You know, in, in our in our tradition, we're talking often about needing to uh, to honour the feminine nature of God, and and trying to find hymnody that actually supports that theology is really difficult. So John and Brian Wren are two of the people that I know who've done it, and um, yeah, but I it's, think it's really thing important. Is, it's not it's no hard. I mean, I, I, two years ago, I mm. decided that for a year I'd read the Bible, only the chapters that mentioned women. Mm -hmm. Uh, which was a, a revelation, A, because I found a whole lot of women who I never knew existed, although I would have thought I'd read the Bible perhaps ten times from beginning yeah. to end. Mm. But B, because you come across these stunning images of God. Uh, they're not just two or three. They percolate all the way yeah, through. And sometimes, uh, I mean, I'm th thinking that Sunday past, the church I was in, I think it'd be all over the world, people read Psalm 23, and it was called the Shepherd Psalm. Mm. Well, it's only a Shepherd Psalm until you come to, you have spread a table for me. And then it's the image of a host, and most hosts who make, who spread the table are women. Mm. And then you discover that Jesus uses the parable of the good shepherd, followed by the parable of the woman who looks for a coin, mm. both of which prefigure God. Mm. So I mean, the thing is, to me, is why have we spent so long avoiding this? Absolutely. And it's been a matter of mm. of intentional avoiding because images of God, which are not you know hairy chested macho boy in the sky. 
don't don't fit well with people who want an imperialist church yes. with an all male hierarchy. Yes. Well, I've mentioned before that uh, the most radical thing that well, the thing I get taken to task about most often is at the end of even song. Uh, we have the ironic blessing, and I use two masculine pronouns, he, and then two feminine pronouns, she. And it's that use of those two feminine pronouns that has, has got me the most, uh, the lengthiest, most uh, outraged letters, and including a, a, a person who was a bishop further north up here, told when he, he's just moved to Brisbane, and he told me that he knew I was on the radar because he, he got an eight-page letter from an incensed member of his clergy who came to Evensong and he wanted that bishop to write to the archbishop to discipline me for using the feminine pronoun of God in a blessing. Stunning. Isn't it stunning? <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah. How Very radical is that? I mean, <laughs> and, you know. But what, you see, if somebody writes an eight-page letter, what's up with them? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, what's going on that they you want know, to... I would want to know anybody who writes me a two-page letter of complaint. Yes. I, I, I mean, I'm quite happy to take complaints, mm. but I wonder what's in your past that's haunting you. Yes. Yes, yeah. well, the bishop Otherwise said... Otherwise, just write a postcard. Yeah, but, well, the bishop <laughs> said he only wrote a two-sentence letter back. <laughs> <laughs> So, John, can you talk in about some of the feminine imagery you've used in, in your your music that you've written? Well, the Holy Spirit's a good starter because uh, I, d I discovered that I used a hymn which I'd found in, in India and it's it's got a whole lot of lovely uh, images of the Holy Spirit. God's Spirit is here. Verses 2 and 3, the personal pronoun she is mentioned. And when I was in an Anglican church in Canada, one evening where this was part of the presentation that I was doing, as people were leaving, this big, tall, six feet two, slender, maybe 30-year-old Indian guy came up and, and embraced me, flung his arms around me. He said, I am so happy tonight. I said, that's great. Why? He said, "This I've been in Canada for 10 years. This is the first time I have spoken of the Holy Spirit and the gender to which I'm accustomed. Mm -hmm. Now, he was, he was a Hindu. I mean, he, was, he came, sorry, he spoke Hindi. He was a Christian, and in, and in Hindi, the Holy Spirit is female. The Holy Spirit is in female in a lot of Asian languages. In some African languages, he or she is the same pronoun. In Hebrew and Aramaic, the languages that Jesus spoke, uh, the Holy Spirit was female. The Holy Spirit has a sex change when it comes in to, uh, <laughs> to English and Greek and German and French and Italian. Uh -huh. so, that, so that's one. And then... Um, well, you know, there's a lovely uh, poem which uh, I use, which uh, begins mothering God and mothering Christ and mothering spirit. And I remember, you know, the mothering Christ thing uh, is, is totally legitimate because when Jesus talks about how he'd like to gather the children of Jerusalem, he doesn't say, under my wing like a rooster. I mean, that just is an impossibility. Roosters don't have that kind of eternal touch. Uh, he says, like a hen, he uses that of himself. So it's, I mean, it's just, it's there, it's all, it's all through the Bible. The, the fact that the church and the nation of Israel are referred to as the bride. You know, we are the bride of Christ. The only time I ever noticed that is when I'm in a very high Anglican Catholic church and folk are walking about with nightgowns on. Uh, then you get the image of the bride, but the whole church is the bride of Christ. It's a female noun juxtaposed against against Jesus. So we, we should inhabit that mm. and we should let it provoke and disturb us. That's okay. Language is not always meant to bore. Sometimes it's meant to provoke. 
It's fascinating now, even just thinking about this, how I think I'm reflecting on how almost every hymn or, or worship song I think I've ever sung is just full of he, him, his. Yeah. And you touched on, um, uh, I think this is a quote of yours, that people often forget what they hear preached, but they remember what they sing. Yeah. Um, which is what we were talking about earlier, that thing that it does embed into your mind over and over again. Yeah, and if, and if you only speak of the people of God in masculine terms, you know, there's one time I was asked to do a, a workshop with people who write, write you know, commercial, good-selling worship songs. Every one of these people said, we have to realize that the church is male and female and stop using masculine pronouns or masculine models for discipleship. I don't think I've seen any of these people, although they agree with that in principle, change their language in the past 10 years. And it's because commercially what sells it's what keeps to the standard of vocabulary that uh, people feel comfortable with. So we're, we're, it's men and it's soldiers and all that kind of stuff. So singing is good fun and we don't want to feel disrupted when we, yeah, we, when we come across it. Or, 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 or as men, we don't want to remember that there are women here. Or as women, we're quite happy with this male hierarchy. I don't think so. Hmm. It shows how radically we do need to change things, mm. doesn't it? Yeah. Um, might just touch briefly on, I guess, creativity as a whole and the role it plays in social justice, because it is often a critique levelled at at creatives who have a faith life. Is um, you know, why are you sitting down all day writing a song or, or doing a piece of art when you could be out, uh, you know, feeding the homeless or whatever? But but I know you've spoken about the role that creativity and that art can play in actually evoking um, social justice. Can you just speak on that a little bit? Well, I'm, I'm just thinking uh, one of the workshops I was doing recently has an example of two songs which were in America at the same time, written by two very different people. One was written, one was a guy called Robert Lowell, and the other was Stephen Foster. Now, Foster was a, a white guy who didn't believe in the abolition of slavery, and so he wrote songs that suggested that when slaves were far from the old plantation, they were just wearying to get back. I mean, this is anathema. I mean, people were people in America were being publicly lynched until 1970s. No slave at the turn of the century was wanting to go back to the plantation where he would probably have been taken from his mother and sold, or where his mother might have been impregnated by a white man who was the master. And then uh, Lowell, on the other hand, writes a hymn which says, uh, "Are you are you who?" Uh, say that you are freed men. Are you really free as long as one of your brothers or sisters feels the chains of slavery? You who are condone slavery are really the people who are enslaved. Now, what these two, song, two songs did had, had a different function. One was to conscientize people with regard to the evils of slavery. The other was to make people feel quite content with it. So mm. both, you know, the, the one roused people to action. You know, people marched with Martin Luther King partly because they believed that we will overcome one day. It was a very strong song. So although it's written perhaps, well, I think people who just sit in a room and write a song because they think it'll be a hit are very different from people who have been energised and touched and provoked, disturbed by social injustice and write a text which enables people to move. The song "We Are Marching in the Light of God" was not written so that you know praise bands could say we are we are laughing in the light of God and we are dreaming in the light of God. It was written written to enable people who were burying their dead to carry the coffins to the graveyard before the curfew came, which disallowed them to sing. So, do you think then 
do you think that all, I guess, worshipping communities should almost have a, after they hear this podcast, have a sit-down meeting and get the, the list of all the hymns or songs that they have on their on their roster and kind of go through them one by one and say, geez, has anyone looked at the lyrics of this one? Maybe we should move away well, from this one. Or That's a very good idea. We should, you know, if you take care in, in, in choosing the words with which you preach and with which you lead people in prayer, you should recognise that those who choose the hymns have an effect on people's theological understanding on the breadth or narrowness of the spirituality. And we shouldn't just go for the first line and think, because it's a nice tune, we'll have it. Well, that would be quite revolutionary for some churches to do, but I suppose there, there is a, a very much a need to do it with the impact it is it is having. Uh, well, you know, do we, do we want to live in a hermetically sealed Victorian time capsule? We can quite happily do that by singing a whole lot of Victorian tunes and a whole lot of Victorian hymns. If we want to inhabit the 21st century, we take that from the past, which still speaks for us and to us, but we also supplement it with that in the present, which engages us with present realities as much as Victorian hymns engaged people a century and a half ago with the realities of that day. I suppose some people might not be aware part of the problem and the reason they keep leaning on old hymns or, or you know, modern traditional sorry, modern um, songs that, that maybe have theology in them that's quite damaging is because there, there doesn't seem to be much of an alternative. People don't know of an alternative, which is why your music, I think, is so um, groundbreaking in a sense. Is, is there much out there in the way of, I guess, alongside what you're doing, is there much out there in terms of um, music that, that does speak a theology people would, would happily sing loud? Yeah, I think it's there, but the but the I mean we're we're incredibly fortunate. My colleagues and I did not never wrote to to be sung in Australia or Japan or wherever else we translated. We wrote particularly for Glasgow, and for for people in Iona, and that that was all. And and we've been fortunate to have a a very small uh, publication company which the Iona community have, which which took our stuff, and then other. You know, bigger producers began to pick it up and put it in hymn books. The difficulty is that when you have a writer or writers who are quite impassioned and are writing about that which seems to be a minority interest, commercial publishers, of which there are increasingly few, become more and more fussy about whether this will sell rather than whether it'll speak for the people. What are the key tenets then, I suppose, of your the key tenets of your songwriting um theologically what what is it your um what images i mean i know that's a very hard that's a very big question to answer you know in, in just a few sentences but if if we look at a lot of things that you talk about you that, that come through in hymns such as soldiers such as army such as a very masculine image of god mm-hmm. um what 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 alternative musical narrative are you putting out in your music uh Oh, I mean, that would take me a wee while to answer. Uh, uh, one th- thing is that, that, that Jesus was incarnate. He was our flesh and blood. And therefore, and we are summoned not just to believe in Jesus, we're summoned to follow Jesus. The discipleship is not passive, it's active. I think that's one of the big themes. And, and, and also that we, um, that if we belong to God, then there is nothing which cannot be said to God by way of complaint as well as praise interesting can you just um, talk a bit more about that well you know if, if, if people if, if people have a bad experience you know whether it's their faith or whether it's their health they should be able to have the means by which that's offered to God I mean this came home to me when once a, a guy who was a young father 
uh, spoke of how he and his wife, expecting their first baby, uh, discovered that she was severely deformed. They were offered a, a termination of pregnancy. They kept the baby going. And because the going down the birth canal would probably end the baby's life, she was so damaged, they had her delivered by caesarean section. She lived for 20 minutes, and then she died in her parents' arms. And this guy, whose wife was a psychiatrist, he was a pastor, said, we knew we were going to lose the baby. What we never knew was how awful we'd feel when there were no words with which we could lay this child on the ground. Now that for me spoke vividly about how we need the pastoral words, texts, which allow people who are in anguish or in despair or in depression. You know, one in five people in Britain suffer from psychological illness, most of it's depression. We have to supply the text by which these people feel that they're included and not just supply texts by which they'll feel excluded. That's a fascinating point because so often the songs we sing are about how glorious we feel in the light of God or whatever, and and there's probably a lot of people in the congregation singing it, not feeling glorious in the light of God that morning. You you, you go to the Psalms and you discover the biggest Uh, sector of Psalms are the Psalms that deal with with despair and anguish and life gone wrong. And I think the Psalms are the model. There are Psalms, and and because we we don't understand that they are touching into people's emotional life, we tend to censor the Psalms. There are Psalms that say, God, let this person's... Children be orphaned. Let 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 the let the whole thing fall apart. I hate them. 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 And we censor it because we think, oh, God wouldn't do that. And that's not the point. The thing is, this person is so miffed that they want to be able to express that to God. And the psalmist was bold enough to say, if this is what a person needs to say, then I'm going to provide them with the text to say it. And I think John's absolutely spot on. Is that we've just got to broaden the subject matter so that uh, and and some of his work has done that um, mm. uh, there's that beautiful hymn about the touching place that that really is quite raw in terms of think of the women who men have defiled you know we sing that in, in you know, singing that in a in a hymn is really powerful um, and we've got to we've got to sort of open up that sort of uh, real life experience being and being legitimized before god Speaking of hymns so much, it does strike me that people who listen to this would probably have one of two experiences of a church, which is one that sings hymns or one that obviously sings the more contemporary um, sort of music, that there is that very much that tradition versus um, contemporary culture dynamic at play uh, when you are talking about hymns. What's your view on, on I suppose, um, the relevancy of tradition and, and why you prefer to work in, in the traditional version of him? Well, I don't know that I prefer to work in the traditional. I think I prefer to work in the real world rather than the traditional world. I mean, the tradition, the, the only constant about tradition is that it changes. And where a, a church's body of hymns has seemed to stop at one time zone or one moment in theological history, then that has to be questioned. And I don't despise praise music. I use it sometimes because, you know, in some churches I go to, the worship is just so dire and dull that something uh, 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 lively needs to happen. So it's, it's not a matter, I think, of either or. It's a matter of what is appropriate for these people at this time and enabling a balanced diet to happen. Um, and to some means, one of the kind of commentators in, um, in America said that the music which, which we represent, because we don't just represent our own music, and our own music is not of one style, 
as a kind of bridge because it manages some somehow to enable people who are at different ends of the uh, of the musical spectrum to feel this is kind of a safe ground or it's ground in which we can walk together. So we've often spoken about your journey through different traditions, you know, different parts of the Christian tradition um, on this podcast, which would have encountered all the different sorts of um, worship music, hymns. You know, I imagine you've probably seen the, the on your knees sort of impassioned worship music and seen the most traditional of hymns in, in the uh, high church sort of, uh, sort of offering. What do you see as the through line that connects all of this? Is there a through line that connects all of this sort of musical uh, expression? Oh, sure. There, there is people worshipping um, with their whole self in all of those traditions and bringing all of who they are to it. Uh, I think I often used to see, a, you know, people would see worship music as a continuum between highly traditional and then, you know, contemporary. And I always saw the actual worship experience as much more like a circle because I, I could slip in between um, a very contemplative Catholic worship and see it actually felt a lot like a Pentecostal worship experience to me. There was a mystical kind of a, um, a meeting place there where people were really... Um, just being open to the spirit and being um, quiet, even though it might sound loud inside because it was often repetitive, um, which isn't something I'm a huge fan of in um, some music. Um, but they could find actually a quiet place in their soul, regardless of the style of music. I could see that happening in different places. Uh, and I think we have, um, which we've talked about, you have associations with different music at different times in your life that speaks to your own, because um, everyone's relationship with with um, worship is, is unique. And so it will speak to something in, in their past, you know. So, you know, I think whilst it is there's that connection of always being both individual and corporate at the same time which is the power of singing of course too mm. well, what, what are your thoughts peter on on the importance of tradition i suppose you, you know for want of well, maybe a better phrase than that but well um tradition has to be alive for it to be of any use so it has to, as john said it has to be changing um and i think i think it is about um there are there are some hymns from hundreds of years ago that paint beautiful word pictures that inspire us and give us a transcendent experience and they're the ones I think they're the ones we keep um, then there are those that enshrine um, ways of doing culture and society that are destructive and I think we have to put them to bed you know like you know, all things bright and beautiful the original version um, spoke of God ordering estates of of the the poor man, the rich man in his castle, and the poor man at his gate. God, uh, God ordained them to be high and lowly, and ordered their estate. Um, we've actually transformed that hymn, and now we sing about the Great Barrier Reef and corals and stuff. So, it, um, and and the need to look after the planet. So you can actually take some hymnody and you can transform it if it's actually stuff that still works for us but we actually have to work really hard to make it engage with real life and and to cast a vision of where we want to be because you know the jesus project which is only two thousand years old is about transforming life on earth and so it's always about casting that vision of where we want to take it so like our missional hymns we try to pick at uh, the last hymn of our worship. We try to pick something that actually paints a picture of where we want to take life. And I think that we don't 
get transformative if we are stuck in certain visions of God, which is what we've been alluding mm. to with the feminine. <coughs> and I'm thinking particularly while we're talking about horror lines from hymns, the, that horrific line in that hymn song in Christ alone, oh, um, yes. where mm. on the cross where Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. You know, that, I mean, I just won't sing. And... Um, you know, you you can put you can pre- preach your heart out and preach an amazing, you know, it could inspired sermon whoever though it was preaching. Mm. But you sing that hymn and you've just unravelled and taken backwards, because it is so strongly already enculturated that God is pretty angry, you mm. know, and and you've just reinforced that. Mm. So this is why mm. if we are in a future transformative project here, yep. um, for goodness sake, we've got to stop taking you know a thousand paces backwards with one song. You won't be surprised to learn that that's on my band list. <laughs> it's funny though because so that that in the church I I spend a lot of my time that is a, a church favourite and I don't think many people in there hold to that theology at least consciously. And when that I, I enjoy singing the song when that line comes on I just I shut my mouth for those two lines mm. and then keep singing. But there is that that difficulty I suppose that tension between a song that you might enjoy to sing you might enjoy the experience of singing that. I suppose that's what you're talking, Peter. Maybe well, we and, just and sometimes we just omit a verse. So, yeah. we, you know, we look at hymn texts and say, well, this hymn works except for verse 3, which is really, really, really not good. And you just drop it out. And you know, that's what happened with All Things Bright and Beautiful. Um, years ago, the hymn, right, the hymn compilers actually dropped out that line, that, hymn, that verse about God ordering people into high and low and the hymn survived because that had been excised and so sometimes so we do it all the time we just look at it and say well this this is the one this is the um, this is the verse that has the blood sacrifice in it the hymn works without it it's gone we're going to drop that verse from abide with me now and change and decay. I hadn't thought of that before. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm, still, right. I'm still thinking well, about that. And that's the power of it isn't it There's so, so much of it is so subtle that we don't see it until someone points to it. Yeah. And, and we actually have to constantly be asking ourselves and looking at it from different angles so that we actually see afresh the stuff that is oppressing us, mm. the stuff we're singing mm. that is actually mm. oppressing us. Well, and, and in terms of, you know, this just come to my mind now, in terms of speaking about the decline of the church and, and why a lot of people who might step into a church might find it a confronting place, I've had this... Uh, this running dialogue with a friend of mine who does a lot of the worship at the church I go to, that if someone happened to be searching for deeper meaning in their life and stepped into our church building and heard us sing, What Can Wash Away My Sin? Nothing But the Blood of Jesus. That was the first thing they heard when they walked in the door, which is a very popular song in the, the culture I'm in. You know, mm-hmm. the, we, we sing that one a lot. Um, I think they would, and perhaps rightfully so, turn and walk straight out the door because that sounds quite culty. When you're singing about the blood of Jesus, it sounds quite... To someone who's not initiated into the tribe, that's quite a scary... So it's not washed in the blood. <laughs> yes, but that, that's quite a confronting, scary, you know, and, and, and almost grounds for complete dismissal of anything else that's going to go on in that, that yeah. church building. Um, so I suppose is the, is the as you mentioned, is the mission then just to, to say people need to be much more mindful about, about what they're actually singing and not just let this be an unconscious thing anymore. Yeah, or if you're, if you're going to use that kind of lyric then at least give people warning of of what that means. I mean, that's there, there is a, a doctrine of the atonement which has to do with the sacrificial blood of Jesus washing us clean, you know, mm. wash me in the water and the blood now be whiter than snow. I mean, the, 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 image, the image is quite kind of lurid for me. If you're going to use that, I think you have to... Uh, you have to explain it, but there are other songs you can sing which speak of Christ's sacrifice and 
in the <laughs> better terms. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, completely. Uh, before we do let you go, John, I mean, there's so many other things I wanted to touch on. I'd love to talk a bit more about Celtic spirituality as a whole, um, but but particularly your time in the Iona community. Can you just speak about what the Iona community is and, and I guess what it's been for you? Uh, well, I'll try and do this as quickly as possible. It uh, began uh, in 563. Well, that was when Columba came to Scotland to evangelise. And then the, the Hira community for 500 years. Benedictines had one from 999 till the Reformation. The place which was the cradle of Christianity, one of the cradles in Western Europe, was dormant until really about 1938 when my community began. And uh, they began with rebuilding the abbey, which had been destroyed by the reformers. Uh, the Reformation, and to make it a centre of pilgrimage and of conference and discussion for people from all over the world. And th- so the community of which I'm a part, we don't, we're not monks and we don't take lifelong vows and we don't live on the one place. There's only maybe two or three live in Iona at any one time. But it's an intentional community uh, which ha- has as its priorities uh, a commitment to prayer, a commitment to social justice, uh, and the renewal of the church and a commitment to engaging with fellow members there's about 250 of us now and being accountable for our time and for our money and all our members are expected wherever they work whether they're, ref- whether they're retired or whether they're surgeons or whether they're teachers um, whether they are Quaker or Roman Catholic or, or a Presbyterian to try to be catalysts within their own community for issues of um, of social justice. And in the past, it was primarily to do with the peace movement. And since the tearing down of the Berlin Wall, it's now more to do with ecology and with multi-faith communities within our cities, trying to you know ensure peace and understanding between people. So Iona, obviously being an, uh, an island off Scotland, uh-huh. what, what's it like to, to visit? I mean, many people, I know, have it as a bit of a pilgrimage. Oh, aye. Uh, it's, I mean, it's a, it's a great place to visit, but you have to want to get there to go there. <laughs> you don't kind of bypass it unless you're going on a cruise around Great Britain. Um, it's, it's, it's a stunning place. It's no big, three miles by one and a half. Uh, in the winter, everything shuts down, apart from a shop that opens for about three hours a day. But from Easter until, say, October, um, November, uh, we get about a quarter of a million people coming by train, and then ferry, and then bus, and then boat, and then they end up some for you know four hours. Some people stay because there are apart from the abbey, there are hotels and things. But people, I mean, one of the war, the previous wardens of the abbey, he said it used to see people coming off the boats and and clinging to the rocks, hugging them. And and I mean, some of these were Americans, uh, and that was partly because they just deeply believed that their faith uh, began with the mission of Irish monks who came to Scotland and who then began to re-evangelise Europe. I mean, the the monastic communities which Columba founded, both in Scotland and Ireland, had a great effect all through uh, through Western Europe. So that so, so yeah, and and if you're in a place where prayer has been made for fifteen hundred years, you can't really be neutral to it. There's a a very strong sense of both the tranquility of a small island on the edge of civilization and also of a place where God has been taken seriously. A lot of people do feel drawn to Celtic, the Celtic tradition, yeah. I suppose, um, uh, because of its 
maybe open-minded nature, more inclusive nature maybe than, than some others. At least that's certainly my perception without knowing it to a great extent. Can you speak a bit about the Celtic tradition? Well, well uh, it's a kind of trendy thing. You know, the Americans have invented a whole lot of, of, about Celtic Christianity, Celtic spirituality, which is not necessarily rooted. I, I think that one of the distinctive things is, you know, if you're interested in Franciscan spirituality, you look at St. Francis. If you're interested in Benedictine spirituality, you look at Benedict. There's no kind of big person who wrote about Celtic spirituality. It's all fragments. And maybe that's why it appeals to people. Well, two things. One is because there, there are very interesting fragments that go way back to the 7th century. But the, the great saints, they never wrote anything. It was their, their successors who kind of wrote about their lives and remembered the hymns or the sayings that they had. But you do find a, a very strong rootedness to the ground, a very strong embeddedness of humanity is meant to be one of the three forums of praise of God. Uh, there's the, the angels in heaven, there's the church on earth, and there's creation. And there's a bondedness between humanity coming from the soil and living on earth and being the servants of creation. That's a big theme in, in the ancient writings. And then there's another, you know, sweep of um, of stuff that people have become famil- familiar with recently. Uh, these short poems and prayers, prayers for milking, prayers for putting the baby to the breast, sayings about what happens when you go in a boat, uh, all of which uh, come from uh, two scholars, one in Ireland and one in Scotland, who knew that the Gaelic language was under threat and that if you lose a language, you lose culture, wisdom, spirituality. They wrote down what they collected from people in the remote parts of Ireland and Scotland, translated them into English. These are are things that have been passed down through centuries through people who were illiterate, highly intelligent, but couldn't read or write. And so they remembered the lore which they learned from their mother or father, the prayers they said in the morning. And and this uh, intrigues people uh, today because it's very different from ecclesiastical language and the subject matter of much of our liturgies. There's a, there's a few writers in particular who do seem to have had real cut through. Um, John O'Donoghue comes to mind, John Philip Newell, um, mm. uh, two in particular. Is everyone involved in Celtic spirituality called John? I've just <laughs> realised the three that you, yourself no, but, and two of them are two the fa- Johns. The favourite saint of the Celtic Church was Saint John. <laughs> there we go. Maybe that's why. <laughs> Maybe that's it. Well, why do you think the the work of of you know the Ionic community and of these yeah. people I mentioned? Why do you think it is seemingly having such a a relevance to people? I think uh, because to some extent it speaks from outside the box. You know, when you have a, ch- a church, and this is with no disrespect to this magnificent establishment of which I am sat at the present time, but when you have a church, you have parameters which you which limit to some extent the, 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 the discourse. So we don't have many hymns that talk about economics or prostitutes. Although Jesus was very keen to talk about money, as were the prophets, and Jesus would prefer having a meal with prostitutes than a meal with priests. But we've, you know, you, you have a a, a, lang- a language, and and it's a, it's it's an it's in, intended. If you're going to be a community of of worshippers, you have to have a kind of system, and to some extent, a systemized procedure, which we call liturgy, in order that the great events of life and the great events in God are celebrated. But that always, I think, has to be supplemented. And, and to some extent, the Celtic uh, tradition is not a mainline tradition, it's a fringe tradition, and it offers to some extent a supplement or a complement to what the established churches offer. 
What are your thoughts, sir? You, you, I know that you were the person who put me onto John Philip Newell, actually. Um, I, I found his work from, from you. What's, what's the richness you found in the Celtic tradition? Oh, I, I think uh, the fact that it uh, speaks strongly of connectedness, the inherent connectedness of all things, it's very grounded material. Like I, I think there's a um, connectedness with, with earth and an honouring of material body in Celtic spirituality that I have come across. Um, there is an embracing of the feminists, all the stuff that we've been talking about mm. here really that, that I, I find so attractive. And I do find it interesting that the criticism of being becoming more pagan is often levelled at the progressive church and to me, that harks of fear of both embodiedness and the feminine. That's what that's about. You know, it's just the, the word that we can come up with that sounds like a scary word. It's not, but it sounds like a scary word. And uh, because it's all these things that to me, that's the faith that, um, that I have found to be most transformative and that the more, the deeper I go in faith, it was always it became more embodied um, with a greater acceptance of diversity in um, uh, in gender and sexuality and uh, acceptance of and an embracing of um, the feminine in metaphor yeah mm. and I would add to that the um, in the idea of the thin place um, you know, my conversion was uh, through the experience of what I later called the divine in the natural world and I later learnt that the church could do the same or have the same experience in worship and and Celtic spirituality talks of of this world being really thin so that the angels and all those other wonderful beings are just there and if we only stop long enough we would catch a glimpse of them and we sometimes we feel their wings brush past us. Well, the first time I ever spoke about this publicly was actually in Australia at a conference of uh, priests and religious in uh, in uh, Melbourne mm-hmm. and uh, I had two seminars with maybe about 150 people and he, all priests and nuns and what amazed me was uh, that, that people were from time to time wiping their eyes with a handkerchief now I was not saying anything mm. sentimental at all no. but later on uh, one of these uh, priests whose pedigree came from Ireland said he said, I was very moved by this. He said, I think it's because you are saying things which we always believe, but nobody had articulated them before. Mm. And all that's happening mm. is a recapturing of a bigger spiritual tradition yep. which was lost when Augustine turned our gaze from the beloved world that God declared good yes. and made us think about original sin. Yes, amen. Well, there's no better place to end the podcast. <laughs> we could end every podcast on that statement <laughs> just about here on, on the way. Uh, just before you do go, though, John, where can people um, hear some of your music, find some of your music if they if they want to maybe use it in their own oh, worshiping yeah. communities or just for their own devotional there's, life? There's a, there's a publisher, in, <laughs> and I never advertise, but a publisher in Sydney called Willow Connection, and they deal with the music which comes from the Iona community. Okay, great. Uh, I believe you. some of your stuff's on Spotify as well, isn't it? Listen, I have difficulty using a typewriter. Never mind <laughs> thinking about Spotify. <laughs> well, people can search for that themselves then. Um, unless there's another John Bell writing hymns, um, you know, then I, I think it's your stuff on Spotify, but who knows? Well, thank you so much, John. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast, and, uh, and we hope you enjoy the rest of your, your travels around Australia. Thank you very much. And we'll be back with another episode of the podcast shortly. <laughs>